Welcome to New Models. We have more conversational episodes coming to you in the next few days, but are giving you here an audio version of a text we are publishing very soon on newmodels.io. The essay is by the New York-based Argentinian writer Reynaldo Ladaga, excerpted from a book he is writing on New York City and COVID-19. What you are about to hear is a story of physical geography, strategic cartography, and one city's urban planning as death machine on the generational scale. It has very little to do with social media. The essay is read by Carly Busta with sound design by myself, Lil Internet. A Coney Island of the Virus, COVID-19 in New York by Ronaldo Ladaga. During the most intense months of the pandemic, when New York was the epicenter of the worldwide disaster, I took a number of solitary walks through the deserted city. I let myself be guided by two maps produced by the city government that were updated every day on its website. One shows the case rate per 100,000 residents in each zip code. The other shows the death rate. The first of the maps represents the case rate by postal district in shades of rose and purple. The paler zones have the least number of cases per capita. It's easy to see that they correspond to the New York that most visitors get to know, the ones most often represented in the arts and featured in the media. This New York includes almost all of Manhattan, with the exception of East Harlem and the mainly Hispanic neighborhood of Washington Heights. A pale rose band spreads along the East River, along the banks of Queens and central Brooklyn. A few other islands of health appear here and there, especially towards the Northeast, where the city fades into the Long Island suburbs. As for the regions of high case rate per capita, they unsurprisingly are concentrated on the margins. To the North in the Bronx, a blackening purple spreads from the banks of the Hudson down and across the Harlem River to where the borough borders the Long Island Sound, that deep branch of the ocean that turns into what we call the East River but is actually a body of salt water. Across Flushing Bay, which separates the Bronx from Queens, there's an intensely dark zone, which includes Rikers Island, site of the prison complex, and the extremely diverse but mostly Hispanic and Black neighborhoods of East Elmhurst, Jackson Heights, and Corona, Queens. Darkness grows going down the map, and as we approach the long, narrow island of the Rockaways from where one can easily get to other purple spots in southern Brooklyn, around Jamaica Bay and Coney Island. As for Staten Island, high contagion zones appear along parts of the eastern coast and the Kill Van Cull, the narrow tidal strait that separates New Jersey from New York. There's nothing surprising about this topography of the illness. The poor neighborhoods are the most affected. A disproportionate number of the poor are Black and Hispanic. In most large cities, not just the U.S., poor people tend to be pushed to the periphery. In New York, this means being by the water. It's surprising the extent to which the city has pushed so many of its poor and its elderly towards the vicinities of beaches, salt marshes, boardwalks, and piers. One can see this on the second map, which traces the geography of death by COVID-19. 
This death map closely follows the case rate map, but there's some minor nuances and discrepancies. In Northern Queens, the mostly Chinese and Korean neighborhood of Flushing has a higher mortality rate than adjacent Corona, which has a much higher case rate. The reason for this isn't difficult to guess. The virus mostly kills old people and it tends to spare the young. The zones with large numbers of deaths are zones that host large numbers of old people, more specifically, large numbers of old people living together. Up to 40% of deaths in the US have happened in nursing homes. This is one of the reasons why there's a dark purple spot spanning the west end of Coney Island, which is the site of a vast colony of retirement facilities extending along the shoreline, which they share with the large housing project. Here, like everywhere in the city, a symbiosis has developed. Nursing homes are largely staffed with residents of the projects, and the virus goes back and forth between the two. But how did New York grow this ecosystem for this symbiosis to occur? The case of Coney Island is instructive, exemplary, and extreme in this regard. Nursing homes and projects are generally not what we think of when we think about Coney Island. We think about amusement parks and fairs and freaks. If we've seen some of the photographs Diane Arbus took there in the late 50s and 60s, the name may evoke brutal and beautiful images of Puerto Rican couples screaming and flamethrowers spitting fire. We may not suspect that those photographs were actually shot when the Coney Island of legend was nearing its definitive demise, and that the last of the classic parks that flourished in the area was about to be demolished by Fred C. Trump. Donald's father, in a ceremony during which, under the watch of hired ladies in bikinis, he handed bricks to the guests so that they could help him smash the last of the vitrine standing before the bulldozers came. Coney Island is, or was, since the creek that separates it from the continent has been almost completely filled in, a narrow island at the south end of Brooklyn with an extended beach on the Atlantic Ocean. Originally a salt marsh, the area was virtually deserted into the mid-19th century when steamships started to bring day trippers there to sunbathe. But by the end of the century, it had developed into a burgeoning vacation spot with a strict spatial organization. On the eastern half, there are two neighborhoods, Manhattan Beach and Brighton Beach, which back then hosted luxury resorts designed to attract seasonal upper-class visitors. As for the West End, it offered a very different scene. A dramatic expansion of the rail lines after the 1870s brought an ever-increasing multitude of mostly working class, largely immigrant visitors looking to spend a day at the beach. A number of restaurants, dance halls, brothels, and bathhouses opened to cater to this population. By 1890, the area would attract half a million people on a typical Sunday enticed by the sea and the slapstick comedians, the snake tamers, the acrobats and peddlers who received, entertained, and swindled them. Several carousels, a primitive huge roller coaster, and a 300-foot tower brought from the 1876 Philadelphia exhibition punctuated the then still open landscape. Ocean Parkway was the first paved road into the area. It was built at the end of the 19th century. In 1896, the first fenced-in amusement park opened. 
At the time, black visitors were banned from the amusements, hotels, and restaurants, and were strongly discouraged from bathing on the beaches. Blackface performers, however, abounded in the hundreds of concessions and the three self-standing parks that dominated Coney Island during its golden age, which was the first few decades of the 20th century. Among the parks, Steeplechase remained the closest in spirit to carnivals and freak shows. It had human exhibits featuring not only midgets and giants, but all sorts of primitive and savage people, so-called giraffe-necked Burmese women, Berber nomads, Somali warriors, Turkish dancers. Customers equally enjoyed watching each other, though, tumbling and rolling in the human roulette wheel, or being terrorized by a stick-carrying clown in the massive glass-and-metal-clad pavilion of fun. Slightly to the east was Luna Park, which was intended to offer a more highbrow kind of entertainment, one less focused on the rough thrills of gyrating platforms and ferocious clowns and more on the creation of an alternative reality ruled by the new gods of electricity and speed. Seaward from Luna was Dreamland Park, whose towers and minarets of an impossible architecture, their legacy lives on in Disneyland's worldwide, provided the scenery for tattooed bulls and contortionists, the hundreds of stuntmen who reenacted disasters both man-made and natural, and the little people of the town Lilliputia, population 300, built to resemble a 15th-century Nuremberg, Germany, except at half-scale. Dreamland was meant to attract higher-class patrons, those more discerning visitors who preferred to navigate serene canals on Venetian gondolas, climb a monumental Moorish tower ring above a lagoon surrounded by a track for chariot races, or visit the premises where a faux medical doctor, Martin Cooney, ran the infant incubator a pavilion where scores of premature babies were exhibited and preserved in diminutive vitrines. Millions of electric bulbs imbued the massive buildings and cardboard statues, all painted in immaculate white, with a splendor that would have made it hard to conceive of Dreamland's imminent demise. But the twin scourges of fire and catastrophic mismanagement hit all the parks hard. Dreamland burned down in 1911 and was never rebuilt. Luna Park managed to hang on for three decades more, fading slowly away until 1946 when it was bought by Fred Trump, who proceeded to build high-rises in its place. But Trump wasn't the only one bent on clearing away the past. Starting in the 1920s, the city, under the watch of Robert Moses, initiated two massive undertakings in the area restoring the beach, which due to erosion and overuse had shrunk to a narrow band, and building a wide elevated promenade running the length of the island. This initiative required raising parts of steeplechase and dreamland and pushing out a number of concessions that thrived in the vicinity of the sea. Trump was also not the first one intent on turning parts of Coney Island's entertainment district into a residential zone. Recent immigrants, mostly Italian and Eastern European Jews, were already settling the north side of the island, beyond the amusement area, whose western limit was marked by the exoticist structure of the Half Moon Hotel. The conditions for a more decisive transformation, however, an aspiration reformers had held for decades, 
were provided by Moses' eruption into the scene. It's impossible in a short article like this to do justice to the sheer number of projects that Moses completed in the span of a quarter of a century through his diverse roles as the man responsible for the building and administration of the city's parks and highways during the 1930s and 40s, and for the clearing of slums and relocating of their residents in the crucial decade of the 1950s. His impact on Coney Island was as immense as his dislike of the amusements it offered and the customers that patronized them. Moses had a firm belief in the positive effects of exercise and outdoor activities on the mental and physical health of the people. This conviction guided the construction of an astonishing number of pools and playgrounds across the five boroughs. It also inspired two monumental projects on the seaside, Jones Beach, on the southern coast of Long Island, and Orchard Beach, where the Bronx opens on to the Long Island Sound's Pelham Bay. Moses expected that people residing in the upper part of New York, who until then had been traveling on weekends and summer days to Coney Island for fun and excitement, would fill Orchard Beach. But those same people, unimpressed by the charms of what the newspapers called the Bronx Riviera, continued to crowd the trains to southern Brooklyn. In turn, Moses used his power to make sure there would be less attractions awaiting them. The need to restore the perpetually disappearing beach provided this outside official with an opportunity. He would move the boardwalk further inland, eating ever more deeply into the concessions in the parks. At the same time, he would import immaculate pale sand to create a regular surface, a valuable public asset that he could fiercely protect. Moses achieved this by introducing severe regulations. He prohibited the presence of vendors, jugglers, singers, and ad men on the boardwalk, and he prohibited phonographs and poker games on the manicured beach. There must be a new and very different resort established in old Coney Island's place, he averred. There must be more land in public ownership, less overcrowding, stricter enforcement of ordinances and rules better transportation and traffic arrangement, less mechanical noisemaking and amusement devices and sideshows, and a more orderly growth of year-round residents. This last decree, a more orderly growth of year-round residents, was meant to be achieved by using one of the most powerful tools at the disposal of the urban planner, rezoning. Until the 1940s, most of the land bordering the sea had been slated for recreational establishments. Under Moses, it was officially opened for residential use. This allowed the city to acquire property and sell it to private developers, or to turn it into government-subsidized low-income housing. The process caused a further contracting of the amusement area especially the more lawless blocks of bedding parlors, drug dens, and dance halls, known as the gut, which today is the site of the largest concentration of nursing homes in the city and has been one of the main death zones during the COVID-19 crisis. By the mid-20th century, many New Yorkers who had formerly rented bungalows on Coney Island now had access to automobiles, allowing them to go camp in the farther shores of New Jersey. Meanwhile, the Italian and Jewish residents were also less frequent patrons, as more and more fled the city to join the white middle class in the suburbs. 
The area's transformation was accelerated by the loss of local jobs due to the crisis of the entertainment economy, which deepened during the war and in its aftermath, and by the forced resettlement of large contingents of Hispanics and Blacks to the area, pushed from Harlem and parts of Brooklyn by the programs of slum replacement led by Moses. To receive them, the New York City Housing Authority in 1957 built the Coney Island Houses, 500 apartments across four buildings erected next to the boardwalk. In 1953, four years earlier, the Hebrew Home and Hospital for the Aged had purchased the Half Moon Hotel, which by then was operating as a maternity ward, and turned it into the Metropolitan Jewish Geriatric Center. In the following decades, during which the Coney Island houses were joined by the still bigger compound of the Gravesend houses, scores of facilities for low-income elders were built in the place formerly occupied by single-family homes and summer bungalows. The result was a scenery as singular as any in New York. When I visited recently on a foggy morning at the time when nursing home residents are allowed to go out and can be seen with a coffee or a cigarette sitting by themselves along the boardwalk, the super simplified landscape with rows of identical buildings rising on a geometrically defined empty space was singularly eerie. It was as if the buildings, despite their massiveness, were not grounded, but posed. Perhaps the feeling of uneasy equilibrium was reinforced by my awareness that this part of the city is among the most exposed to a rising sea caused by global warming, and by my memory of large sections of this area being utterly devastated during Hurricane Sandy almost a decade ago. This precariousness in the face of the ocean is something that Coney Island, as well as some of the other districts where the symbiosis of housing projects and facilities for the elderly has evolved, most dramatically in the Rockaways, has in common with Florida's Miami Beach. But as real estate developers blithely and recurrently stress, the similarities between Miami Beach and Coney Island don't stop there. Back in the 1960s, Fred Trump commissioned the design for Trump Village, his biggest project in the area, from the firm Morris Lapidus, which had designed Miami hotels Sans Souci and the Fontainebleau, flamboyant examples of the mid-century Miami modern style, which was all the rage at the time and had become synonymous with luxurious resort living. While visiting the area recently, I was intrigued by two 21-story glass towers being built at the extreme west end of the island, between the Ocean View Manor Home for Adults and the fences of the private Seagate community. Called Ocean Drive, the project, I learned, is the initiative of billionaire John Castamatidis, founder of the Red Apple Group, a major fire sector conglomerate that also owns NYC grocery chain, Gristides. Likewise, invoking Florida's Gold Coast with its promise of bringing, quote, quote, Miami sophistication to the Coney Island boardwalk, the Ocean Drive complex looks like nothing else one finds in the vicinity. But its type is familiar. It resembles the numerous upscale residential buildings that have recently appeared in unexpected points of Harlem and Brooklyn and Queens. Custom-designed residences for modern living, reads the Ocean Drive site, which promises apartments fitted with the best European appliances, oak floors, marble countertops, and oversized windows to let the breeze and sun come in 
plus 24-hour concierge and valet service available. Dry cleaning, dog walking, repairs and delivery to cover your busy lifestyle. Everything you need is at your doorstep, the site says. The architectural firm responsible for this project is Hill West, a favorite of hard-hitting developers and one that has collaborated with such global luminaries as Herzog and Demiron and Christian de Park for similar buildings all over the city. The project description for Ocean Drive emphasizes development's location outside of the gated communities in the surrounding neighborhood. It goes on to explain how it will enhance the area with a large retail space set to house a quality neighborhood food store, improve the boardwalk and street ends, and usher in a rebirth to the area. In this way, the two towers will become the farthest node of a network of high-end constructions that is extending all over New York right now, and whose most massive instance rises in midtown Manhattan, Hudson Yards. Soon, the towers will be receiving new residents, residents who will be able to enjoy placid meals at the round wooden tables of a restaurant about to open on the cleanly swept promenade. After dessert, perhaps they'll stroll the premises of the safe and smallish new Luna Park, opened 10 years ago by Central Amusement International, a subsidiary of the Italian rides manufacturer Zamperla. If the Renaissance developer's promise actually takes place, they will have to credit their success in part to the coronavirus. All around the buildings and outside of the gated communities, old people and their low-income black and Hispanic neighbors are dying at one of the fastest rates in New York. Given that at least some of the nursing homes will certainly be shut down and raised, it is not outlandish to see this as the logical conclusion of a generation-long process. One Robert Moses initiated when he erected a number of stark brick buildings on the boardwalk to relocate tenants from the Manhattan slums. And when the Hebrew Home and Hospital for the Aged acquired the Half Moon Hotel, repurposing it as a retirement facility. And so another cycle seems poised to begin. Bearing a collective species-wide change of direction, this one will likely be shorter. Fire has historically been the scourge of Coney Island, burning down parks and hotels and opening a path for urban planners and real estate developers. Today, it is the coronavirus. But the scourge of tomorrow might prove the hardest to tame of them all, the creeping swell of the sea. This has been a text by the New York-based Argentinian writer, Reynaldo Ladaga. The essay has been extracted from a book he is currently writing about COVID-19 in New York. For more accounts of the city and the power that shapes it, you can follow his writing at rladaga.net. Among his most recent books is a collection of short and partially fictional biographies titled Tres Vidas Secretas, Three Secret Lives, Dondi Rockefeller, Walt Disney, Osama Bin Laden. A text version of this essay will be published on newmodels.io.